Good morning and welcome to Sovereign Grace. We'll be looking at Genesis 25 together this morning. We're going to start in verse 12, looking really at an anti-genealogy. You might say what's an anti-genealogy, I'll explain that in a minute. But we're looking at that together. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 25, verse 12, we'll go all the way through verse 18 as we continue our study in Genesis. Genesis 25 and verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsem, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nefesh, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it as we consider it together. Father, we do ask that you would bless your word to our hearing, that your spirit would help us understand what it is that you're saying to the churches, even in this genealogy of the seed of the serpent, that Moses wrote that your spirit superintended for not only Israel as she was coming out of Egypt, but for your church in every age. Help us to understand that we too will be gathered to our people to understand that we need Christ so that we might be gathered to a people who know the eternal blessings of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is life after death. And I suppose we don't think too much about life after death given that we live in the United States. Having just returned from India, I can tell you that I would think about it a lot more if that were my home. I would probably think about it every day. It's a terrible country. I praise God I wasn't born there. I praise God even more for the missionaries who would endure going to such a place for the sake of bringing the gospel to the one point four billion people who live there. It's a tremendous sacrifice. But I think because of our comfort and prosperity, we don't often consider life after death the way I imagine people living in places like that do. But here is the reality. Death is coming for us all. And there is life after death. When you close your eyes in death, they will open to eternity. The question is, what will be in your eternal view? What will you see? Will you gaze upon every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all these blessings of God in Christ, or will you 
suffer under the eternal curse of the Almighty God in hell. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. I ask this as we look at an anti-genealogy in Genesis. Genesis, as I've told you, is arranged around ten genealogies. That's the name Genesis. We translate those words that we see in Genesis for genealogy. We translate it with this phrase. Look at verse 12. These are the generations of. You'll see another genealogy that starts in verse 19. Look there. These are the generations of Isaac. Every one of these genealogies as we go through Genesis is pointing you either to the seed of the woman who is the Christ, who will save his people, or they are anti-genealogies. What I mean by that is, these are the generations of the seed of the serpent. These are the generations of Ishmael. Genesis 25, 12. These are the generations of Esau, Genesis 36, 1. These are the genealogies of the seed of the serpent. The contrast running through the entire book of Genesis and running through the entire Bible is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We know this when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist addresses the Pharisees and he calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? Note John the Baptist is identifying those Pharisees as of the seed of the serpent. What I don't think we realize as we see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent contrasted through the whole of Scripture, what I don't think we realize is that these historical genealogies bear important spiritual lessons for us. Even the anti-genealogies do. So today I want to consider three lessons that we learn in this anti-genealogy. First lesson, God's historical promises being fulfilled provide us confidence that his eternal promises will be fulfilled. His historical promises being fulfilled provide us confidence that his eternal promises will be fulfilled. We'll see that in Genesis 25, 12 through 16. Second lesson is this, you will be gathered to your people. We'll see that in Genesis 25, 17. And third lesson is this, the Lord will judge his people. The Lord will judge his people. We'll see that in Genesis 25 and verse 18. So let's consider our first lesson. God's historical promises being fulfilled provide us confidence that his eternal promises will be fulfilled. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 12. I won't read this entire text, but let's just pick up on verse 12 and verse 16. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Now you've just gotten a summary of Genesis 16, and to some degree Genesis 17, we'll pick up a summary there, Look down at verse 16. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribe. God had made promises to Abraham concerning his son Ishmael. If you remember, Abraham has two sons. 
one through Hagar the Egyptian, his servant, that son's name is Ishmael. He is not the chosen son. The other son, Isaac, whom he has through Sarah, his wife, he is the chosen son. And you're seeing a contrast between those two seeds of Abraham. In verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. And in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. But God had made promises to Abraham concerning Ishmael. The Lord would bless Ishmael with numerous offspring, making him a great nation with 12 princes that would come from him. And if you notice that, in verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes, according to their tribes, he has become a great nation with these 12 tribes and these 12 princes. Now look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17, keep your hand in Genesis 25, and look over at Genesis 17, and look at verse 20. You'll see the promise. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Abraham has prayed on behalf of Ishmael. Abraham has prayed specifically that Ishmael would be elect. That God would cause his covenant to stand with him. In other words, that he would be saved under that covenant. And God has said, no, I'm going to do that through Isaac. And now the Lord says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. Now you're seeing that fulfilled in Genesis 25 in his genealogy. Now notice what it goes on to say. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And he does father 12 princes. That's the fulfillment of the promise that's being shown to you in Genesis 25. Here's the point. The Lord is always good and true. He always keeps his word. He cannot lie. He will keep all of his promises. Now if the Lord has kept his past promises, then he will keep his future promises. This was often the basis of Israel's prayer life. The Lord kept all the historical promises he made in the past, so he will keep his future promises. We can trust him for that. And you'll see Israel pray that way. For example, Asaph prays that way. And he teaches us to pray that way. Asaph writes a psalm. He writes more than one, but Psalm 77 is penned by Asaph. You don't need to turn there. But in that psalm, Asaph teaches us how to pray, how to sing. You might say, is Psalms a book of prayers or a book of songs? Yes. When you're singing, it's a form of prayer. That's why we ought to be singing the Psalms. Because God has given us 150 inspired and errant prayers or songs. If you're looking for a song book, there you go. The Lord wrote down 150 of them for you. So we sing or pray, and Asaph has taught us to sing or pray, particularly in the midst of difficulty. If you remember Psalm 77, Asaph cannot sleep. He's so wearied with suffering and grief that he's unable to sleep. And he's crying out to the Lord, and he has no resources left to deal with his grief. He did not know what the Lord was doing in his terrible circumstances, and he wonders out loud in the psalm, does the Lord even love me at all? 
mean, have you forgotten to be gracious to me? Do you even care about me at all? Look at what you've left me in. I'm so overwhelmed with my grief and circumstances that I can't even close my eyes and sleep at night. I can get no rest. I just stretch out my hand, wearied, all the night, wondering, have you forgotten about me? Do your promises matter to me? So how does he resolve to pray in the face of that? Here's what Asaph says. Not, and I saw the answer to all my difficult circumstances. That's not what he says. He says this. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm going to remember what you did. I will remember, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your mighty deeds. What I'm going to do is stop trying to figure out what's happening in my circumstances right now because I just don't know and stop wondering what all these circumstances mean because I really don't know. What I'm going to do is I'm going to remember what you've done in the past and know that if you've done that, then I can trust you right now as well. And what's he go to? He goes to the Exodus, the great saving event in Israel's history. A people in bondage and slavery for 400 years. You have to wonder for 400 years, has God remembered his covenant promises to us? I know it's easy for us to glaze over Genesis and Exodus and really quickly get to the saving event of Israel coming out of Egypt and forget that there were a people suffering under slavery to whom God had made promises to bless They suffered for over 400 years. That is longer than the history of our nation. You don't think they wondered, are you going to be good to us? Did you forget your covenant promises? Do you love us? And Asaph says, I'm going to remember. You saved them. You brought them out. If you did that, why can't I trust you with this? Why can't I trust you with this? It's an argument Asaph is making from the greater to the lesser. Namely, if you did the surpassingly great work of delivering us from Egypt and the Exodus, then I know you are for us and I can trust you. And Sovereign Grace, we have even greater confidence. We have even greater confidence in Asaph and God's historical work than the Exodus. Greater confidence in that. We have the greater exodus. The greater Red Sea through which we've been saved, not from Pharaoh, but from Satan. Jesus Christ, our Savior. You can be assured that no matter how difficult or how bewildering your circumstances, God is working for your good and his glory. Listen to how Paul puts this. What then shall we say to these things? These things are the things that God has done to save us in Christ. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, listen to the argument from the greater to the lesser. The greater, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Is there a greater work on your behalf that God can do than to give up his own son for you? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are we really worried about the small stuff? And I mean even the worst suffering you endure now is small for God to answer compared to the giving of his own son for you all. That's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave you a son, why won't you trust him to be working for your good in the lesser things? And herein is the lesson of God's historical work. It secures our confidence for his work for us in the future. If you cannot see your way to what God is doing in your current circumstances, which you often can't, you can see your way to what God has done in history. And if he's given his son for you, need you worry that he's not for you. Let's consider our second lesson. You will be gathered to your people. You will be gathered to your people. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's an interesting phrase. He was gathered to his people. That's not talking about being put in the tombs where they are. It's talking about something about his life after his death. Go to Genesis 25 and verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, as God had promised in Genesis 15. An old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Now we know that the gathering to his people doesn't have to do with his burial because we later learn that Abraham's buried in the cave in Mechpelah. It's a euphemism that would have been used in Genesis and among the Hebrews. That you're gathered to your people speaks of the fact that there's some kind of sense of life after death. Both Abraham and Ishmael experience life after death. They're both gathered to their people. Now Abraham is righteous by faith, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham trusted the Lord, and the Lord credited to him his righteousness. So when Abraham is gathered to his people, he is gathered to eternal, blessed life with the Lord. We know that as Abraham is the father of all those who believe. But Ishmael is the seed of the serpent. He does not believe. Ishmael's not elect. Romans 9, 6 and following will make that clear. And just so you know, we'll deal with that question next week. The Lord did not cause his covenant to stand with Ishmael. Now, I want you to notice this. You'll see the Lord covenants with Ishmael. He covenants with Abraham and all his children. He makes covenant promises to Abraham and his children. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You hear the plural? He makes a covenant with Ishmael, but he does not cause that covenant to stand with Ishmael. There's specific language there. Look at Genesis 17, and look at verse 19. Remember the context. God has just promised, I will make a covenant with you, and with your offspring, 
I will be their God and they will be my people. Now notice what he goes on to say, verse 19. God said, Abraham has just asked that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, I will establish, it's Hakem, it's I will cause to stand. I will cause my covenant to stand. Now, notice he goes on to say, with who? With Isaac. As for Ishmael, verse 20, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I'll make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant. I will cause it to stand, Hakem, my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Now that phrase, I will establish my covenant, is the same phrase used with Noah in Genesis 6. God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. But the Lord caused the covenant to stand with a specific offspring, namely Noah. Noah was elect and thus a beneficiary of God's covenant grace. Well, God made a covenant with Abraham and his offspring as well. God established that covenant or caused it to stand specifically with Isaac and not with Ishmael. Ishmael was not an elect beneficiary of God's covenant grace. Now, I told you I'm going to deal with that question of election with regard to Jacob and Esau and Ishmael and Isaac next week. But here's what you need to understand. God covenants with Abraham and his children and causes the covenant to stand with one of those children in specific, that son being Isaac and not with Ishmael. He'll covenant with Isaac and his children and cause that covenant to stand with one of his children, that being Jacob, and not Esau. He covenanted with Adam and his offspring, and he caused that covenant to stand with one of those offspring, namely Noah. God is free to elect whom he will. Thus, God did not give Ishmael the grace of faith, therefore Ishmael did not believe. You might say that seems unfair. Hold all your objections for next week. Hopefully I'll answer them. Just as an insight, the answer will be, you're a creature, close your mouth. Ishmael did not believe, thus Ishmael is condemned. So when Ishmael is gathered to his people, it's speaking of his being gathered to eternal death or suffering the eternal curse of God's wrath. Friends, death and eternal life are certain. The only question is whether you're bound for heaven or for hell. The question of election aside, Here's the issue you have to deal with in your own heart. Those who trust the Lord Jesus, those who follow him and his word, are saved to an eternal life of blessedness. Those who follow the course of this world, the desires of the world and the flesh and the devil, are condemned to eternal hell. Sovereign grace, what will it be for you? You're all sinners. You've all violated God's law. In many ways, you've pursued the lusts of the world and the flesh and the devil. And therefore, in and of yourself, you are justly condemned and deserving of God's eternal wrath. Your eyes will close in death, and when they do, they will open to see 
either the almighty God of wrath as you suffer under this eternal curse, or they'll open to see every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us will give you eternal blessed life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, the sinless man and son of God, bore the wrath of God for everyone who would ever believe. Moreover, he was resurrected from the grave, being shown to be holy and righteous and innocent. And if we trust in him, then we're forgiven of our sins and declared righteous. Our sins are placed upon him, and his righteousness is placed upon us. The question is, do you trust in Jesus Christ? If not, then look to him in faith and be saved. Here's what I'm not encouraging you to do. I'm not encouraging you to sit and wonder, am I elect or am I not? You know there isn't a little like monitor, kind of like light that comes on, the pastors see, elect, not elect, elect, not elect. There's no little sign that comes with you. There's no way for us to know that. We preach the word, we offer the gospel indiscriminately to all creatures, promiscuously preach the gospel to all, everyone who believes, it just so turns out that they're elect. So the only thing you need to deal with is, do you believe? Do you trust in the Lord Jesus? If you look to him in faith, you'll be saved. If you don't, be assured that when your eyes close in death, they will open to the almighty God of wrath and his eternal curses. That leads to my final lesson. The Lord will judge his people. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 18. You might say, that seems like a strange phrase. The Lord will judge his people. Isn't the Lord judge his enemies? Why are you saying the Lord will judge his people? Well, the Bible says that. That's why I say it. But look at Genesis 25, 18, and we'll work from there. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now we're learning two realities about Ishmael and his people here that I've already stressed to some degree. One historical reality you might want to know is that they're Arabs. We're learning about is where the Arabic people come from, from Ishmael's line. But the second thing you're learning, the spiritual lesson, if you will, that you're learning, is that Ishmael opposed Isaac. Ishmael opposed God's people. He settled over against all his kinsmen. You know who his kinsmen were? Isaac and his offspring. The seed of the woman. That's who his kinsmen were. He settled over against them. Ishmael was the seed of the serpent and Isaac was the seed of the woman. But here's the somewhat startling reality. Both Ishmael and Isaac are from Abraham's line. Have you stopped and given that any thought? God made promises to Abraham and his children. Again, look there, Genesis 17, verse 7. After telling Abraham, you'll make him exceedingly fruitful and make him into nations, and kings shall come from him, which we're seeing happen in Ishmael and Isaac's life. Kings come from him, right? Both through Ishmael and Isaac. He says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you 
and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God had promised to be their God. God had covenanted to be the God of Abraham's children. Ishmael is one of Abraham's children. God covenanted to be the God of Ishmael. Further, God gave a visible sign and seal of that covenant promise in circumcision. Look at Genesis 17 and verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What's the purpose of a visible sign? Why does God give visible signs? I preached a whole sermon on this. Why does he give visible signs? It's a signing seal that God's word is good, that God can be trusted. It's a signing seal that this person belongs to the Lord. They've been set apart as belonging to God and not to the world out there. He's a part of Abraham's household, part of the covenant people of God. He's been physically set apart, visibly, that that's so. Covenant signs and seals, listen, we need to understand this because we get this wrong all the time. Covenant signs and seals are given by God to strengthen our faith, not to strengthen God's faith. It's not like God said, I'll really believe that you mean it if you do this visible thing. Because God doesn't need any help to believe anything. You understand that? He's not sitting there going, well, is their word good? <sighs> if they'd only give me something visible, some token or pledge, that I can really believe them. Maybe water. Maybe if they did it in water, then I would believe their word. Covenant signs and seals are given by God to us to strengthen our faith. So when God gives a signing seal of circumcision, God is saying, I made a promise, and I really mean it. Here is the signing seal to secure your weak faith. Here's a visible token or pledge, so your weak faith is strengthened. Please hear that, Sovereign Grace. I think we see God's signs and seals, or the sacraments, if you will, as somehow giving God a visible sign that we really mean it. I believe here I'm going to get baptized because I really mean it. And we miss the fact that we didn't give God baptism and we didn't give God the Lord's Supper. So I come to the Lord's Supper because I really mean it. We didn't give him either of those sacraments. He gave them to us so that when we're baptized or when we take the Lord's Supper, God is saying to us, I really mean it. Here's a visible picture of that. Sovereign grace, God made promises to save all those who believe in Christ. And he is baptizing you to show you that he really means it. And Ishmael is receiving the covenant sign of circumcision, this signing seal of belonging to God's people, because God really means it when he makes a covenant. Now, here's the question. Then how could Ishmael be damned? Isn't that your objection? If God gave this promise, he would be his God and Ishmael would be his people. And God gave him a visible sign that says, 
I really mean it, then how could Ishmael be damned? Let me ante it up and make it even more difficult for you. This covenant sign and seal of circumcision is the sign of a new heart. It's a sign of being born again. It signs and seals being born again. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That's called regeneration. That's pointing in Deuteronomy 30, by the way, forward to the new covenant promise. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will pour my spirit into you, and I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will cause you to walk in my laws and my statutes. So Ishmael was given a sign and seal of spiritual rebirth, or of a new heart. So how could Ishmael be condemned? Let me make it even more difficult. If that's not far enough, let me take it a step further. Circumcision is a sign and seal of justifying faith. Of righteousness by faith, Romans 4.11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal. Listen, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now, if Paul's word on what circumcision is isn't good then I'm not sure what to tell you. But Paul says circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. Then Abraham received the signing seal of circumcision, which signs and seals righteousness by faith. Now, Isaac is given that sign and seal of righteousness by faith at eight days old. Ishmael is being given the signing seal of righteousness by faith. He's probably late teens. Maybe a bit older than that. So if Ishmael can receive the signing seal of God's covenant promise to be his God and his being his people, and if Ishmael can receive the signing seal of a new heart or of being born again, and if Ishmael can receive the signing seal of justification by faith, then how in the world can Ishmael be damned? How can that be? How could God make a covenant promise with Abraham and his children and even give Ishmael the visible sign and seal of that covenant promise and then condemn Ishmael? Isn't that an important question to answer? Well, friends, because God's promises are offered to and signed to all his visible people. God's promises are offered to And signed to all his visible people, all believers and their children, in every covenant. But that does not mean that they are all, all professing believers and their children, that they are all, in the truest sense, children of the promise. Ishmael received all of these promises externally. They were stated to him. He heard them. They were marked on his body physically, but he never received them internally in the heart. He did not trust in the Lord of covenant promise. Rather, he opposed the covenant Lord. He was part of God's visible covenant people, and yet he did not trust in the God of the covenant. He was not elect, like I said, More on that next week.
He did not believe. He was not circumcised in his heart. He did not believe the Lord, and thus he did not obey the Lord. He was externally a part of God's covenant people, but not internally a part of God's covenant people. Paul speaks to this, by the way. Listen to what he says. For no one is a Jew. That is part of the people of God. An Old Testament word, if you will, for the church. The Kahol Yahweh, which is the assembly of the Lord, which in the Greek is translated the ecclesia of the Lord, if you will. In other words, the church of the Lord. That's what they're called in the Old Testament over 70 times. They're called the church of the Lord. He was a part of the church. For no one is a church member, if you will, or a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Romans 2.28. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. You're like, what are you talking about? Isn't circumcision exactly outward and physical? Isn't that what it is? I mean, it looks pretty outward and physical to me. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, it turns out, as Paul says in Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. Not all those who are a part of God's church are actually a part of God's church. Not all God's visible covenant people are God's true people from the heart. And you might ask, well then, what good was all that to Ishmael if he wasn't saved? What good is hearing the promises and what good is getting a visible sign and seal of the promise if he wasn't saved? Is God really good for his promises then? Can we even trust his promises? To us and to our children if Ishmael wasn't saved. Yes, you can. Paul actually anticipates your question. Listen to what he says. Then what advantage has the Jew? The outwardly church member, if you will. Or what's the value of circumcision? What are the answer? Much in every way. Well, it doesn't seem like it's a value in any way because the man's condemned. What advantage has Ishmael? Or what's the value of Ishmael's circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, Ishmael was entrusted with the oracles of God. He received God's promises. They were offered to him. They were signed on him. What if Ishmael was unfaithful? Does his unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Friends, I'm just taking their the plural pronoun, and putting Ishmael into Romans 3, 1 through 4, because it applies. Does his faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's the answer Paul gives. By no means, let God be true and every man a liar. Do you hear Paul's answer? Ishmael had so many advantages in being God's covenant people. What were the advantages? He received the signing seal of circumcision, he received the oracles of God. He heard God's promises. He had a believing father. He was part of a believing household. He was taught about the covenant God and even received the covenant sign of belonging to God's covenant people. If you don't know what an advantage that is, that's because you've only grown up in a Christian home and you have no idea what it's like to grow up in an unbelieving one. 
where you never went to church, you never heard the word, you didn't know who Jesus was, you didn't have godly parents. He was taught about the covenant God and received the covenant sign of belonging to God's covenant people, and his unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. He was offered the promise of God, and he rejected that offer. He rejected it. He was offered that promise in spades his whole life, and he rejected it. Here's why I drive at all this. I think that we wrongly think of the unbelievers as the people out there and never the people in here. Now, I know some of you go, okay, that's I know that. There are unbelievers in here. But I don't think we think enough about it. It's clear that the seed of the serpent is often lurking among the people of God in his visible church. I think that's sometimes why we're so scandalized when people commit apostasy or walk away from the faith because we're in shock that this person who looked like the real deal to me is now walking down that wicked path. Listen, the children of the devil often live in the same home and are the members of the same church as the children of God. We see this in the genealogies of Ishmael and Esau. They're the children of Satan, and they grow up in the same home with the children of God, in the same church. Externally, they're a part of the Abrahamic covenant people, even marked with the visible sign of membership and receiving a number of external privileges. But internally, they're opposed to the God of grace who made that covenant. There are so many benefits that you can have in being in the external Christian community, in being in a believing home, and yet, in the face of all those benefits, you can be damned. Children, I hope you young people who grew up in the church hear this. You can be a part of Christ's visible church. That's the church you see. The church you don't see is the people who are regenerate from the heart. You can't see that. You can only see this. You can be a part of God's visible church. You can be raised in a Christian home. You can be baptized. You can hear the preached word. You can see God answer prayers. You can experience blessings from God. And you can still reject the gospel. You can profess faith and become a member who takes the Lord's Supper and still reject the Lord. Sovereign grace, it's true for all of us. For all of us. You can be a baptized believer, one who is set apart in Christ's visible church, one who has seen prayers answered, who has at times rejoiced in the preached word, who's even tasted the blessing of the gospel of free grace and the forgiveness of sins, by the way, this is just all Hebrews 6, who has communed with Christ's church and yet be a false professor, a man of temporary faith and thus condemned. There is temporary faith. You've read the parable of the sower. It exists. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26. For if, here's the conditional clause, if we go on sinning deliberately. That means if we have a pattern of unrepentant sin. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the truth of the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what happened to the Mosaic law. You set aside the law of Moses, you violated that covenant, death penalty on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now listen to what he says. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, set apart, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, listen, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we must remember that the Lord will judge his people. That's talking about the visible church, among whom some are enemies of the gospel. And thus we continue to remind one another to trust in Christ our Savior. We gather to cast ourselves upon him. That's why he just said in the preceding verses, let us not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. But we got to come together to stir one another up to love and good deeds and even more as we see the day drawing nigh. Why? Why? For we know that Christ alone saves and we know that we need Christ to keep us until the end. But we also know that Christ keeps us through the means of grace he's given to us. Thus we continue to return to corporate worship to hear the word and receive the sacraments. We continue to be in the word and prayer. We do so because we don't trust ourselves. But we trust Christ alone. You see, if you fall into the error of trusting yourself and thinking you can do it on your own, you can do it without the means of grace God has commanded you to participate in, then you will find yourself walking down a really dark path. Your faith is not ginned up by you and it's not sustained by you. It's given you by God and it's sustained by him. And it's sustained by the means he's given. People who avoid Christ's church and avoid being in the word and prayer are people who have an incredibly arrogant view of their own strength to sustain their faith. Just put it out there. God sustains us through the means, not without means, through the means he's given. For we know that he alone can keep us to the end. I was going to end with the song you guys know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it by the thy courts above. But I heard Jeff's voice ringing in my head. I hate when you end with songs that we don't sing right after. So I'll quote a song we're singing right after because we're going to sing this song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Listen, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. And he does that as we trust in him through the means he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we...
ask for your spirit to keep us attentive to the means that you've given that we might continue to walk in faith and trust the Lord Jesus until the end. You have given us the gift of faith and we ask that you would sustain us in our faith. We pray for those who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, who are looking to themselves and not to Christ, that you would be pleased to save them. And we pray for those who are among us who have begun to walk away, have arrogantly pursued after the lust of our own flesh. We pray that you would bring us to repentance, keep us from apostasy, sustain us to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.